Hello, folks. Welcome to my podcast, Layers in Media, A Perspective. I am your host, Aisha Sala. Ramadan Mubarak, lovelies. If y'all are observing, I hope this month has been filled with blessings and I hope you are feeling spiritually fulfilled. If you have been feeling disconnected spiritually this Ramadan, I hope you don't beat yourself up about it too much. It is a very normal experience to have and I hope you recognize that you are very much not alone. Especially mid-pandemic, so much has changed and challenged the way Muslim communities congregate and socialize during this month. A lot of the time during previous Ramadans, several of us relied on the gathering of the community during iftar or during prayer, and it was the experience as a collective that made us feel spiritually connected among the ummah. But the pandemic has made a lot of us confront and experience our faith alone. And I think that while the challenge can be a bit daunting and disheartening at times, that maybe there is something to be gained from this experience. I hope that whether alone or with family, you have been able to reconnect with yourself and find the benefits in those moments in some small way. Apologies for not posting an episode last month. I made a New Year's goal to have a podcast episode out every month, and throughout April I delayed the process, mostly because I couldn't really settle for what my next focus was going to be. I thought I would do an episode on Ramadan because Ramadan is one of those things that is often misunderstood, and when you're surrounded by people who can only focus on the logistics of Ramadan, it can be very disheartening because the actual physical fact is just the superficial layer of Ramadan. It's like the tip of the iceberg. And because most people are looking at the experience from the outside in, they are simply incapable of understanding the depths and profound spiritual possibility that comes with Ramadan. It honestly... And this is by no means a judgment on those who aren't Muslim and remain fairly ignorant of the whole practice, but it kind of breaks my heart when people say things like, I mean, I guess it's good for losing weight, but that's about it. Like, that's literally the furthest thing from my mind during Ramadan. If the only reason I was fasting from Fajr until Maghrib was to lose weight, I probably would not be able to fast Ramadan because that physically superficial goal would not be enough to sustain me throughout the entire 30 days. Mumsy and I were talking when the first days of Ramadan hit and we were sitting at the table just in awe because when Ramadan comes, we swear it's almost like there's a magic in the air like anything is possible, and each day is pregnant with this magnificent potential to become a significantly better version of yourself. And if you're not Muslim, then I know that this probably sounds crazy, but I don't know how to make it not sound crazy without doing a disservice to how special this month is and how special it feels. Like there's always this assumption that when it gets closer to the end of the month, people think we're probably feeling relieved because we no longer have to fast. But the reality is no time of the year flies faster than the month of Ramadan. We are already in the last 10 days and there's already this feeling of sorrow that's settling over my heart because I'm very acutely aware that Ramadan is almost gone. 
And of course, as I'm getting older, time seems to be going so much faster. There's this great lyric from an ABBA song that goes, sometimes I wish that I could freeze the picture and save it from the funny tricks of time. And Ramadan is one of those things where if I could carry a moment of time in my pocket and hold it close and never let go, it would be a day of Ramadan. But Ramadan is coming to an end and soon it will be gone. And inshallah, I hope everyone takes the time to really enjoy these last few days before this Ramadan is gone. A lot of people have lost loved ones recently and have had to come to terms with the fact that living to see another Ramadan is never guaranteed. I know it's a morbid thought, but there are benefits that come with these thoughts, mainly because they teach us gratitude and humility. We do not know when our time here is up, but for some reason, those of us who are here are meant to be here now. Whether we feel worthy of this moment or the space we take up doesn't matter because we know what Islam teaches us, which is that our existence is intentional. We may not know our purpose, but that does not change the reality that our purpose is innate, undeniable. This episode is actually inspired by something that happened recently on my personal Instagram page. I was trying to find something in one of my drawers and I came across a folder with some old essays I saved from college. I probably revisit these essays at least once a year because there are bits of writing from those chaotic university days that I'm actually quite proud of and don't want to lose just yet. Anyway, I posted a picture of one of the essays on my story and said something along the lines of, pulled an old essay out. I don't know what I was going through in 2013, but she could write some depressingly poetic-ish the particular essay that I posted was an essay that I had written dissecting the interpretation of death that two poets deliver in their respective poems, Tithonus and Adonais. I titled the essay, A Most Common Aversion, and went on to talk about how Tennyson and Shelley present a different view on death than is more generally depicted. Anyway, I posted the photo and someone reached out to me asking me to post the entirety of the essay instead of just the first page. And and I did, and I got a rather unexpected influx of responses. Like people occasionally respond to my story posts with a casual emoji or maybe a comment of agreement, but this was an abnormal amount of responses coming in, at least from my page. Um, some of it was just people complimenting the writing and the subject matter of choice, but others were saying things along the lines of, I didn't know it, but I think I needed to read this essay. And it really struck me that however common the concept of death is to the living, we don't actually talk about it in any real in-depth way because of how scary we've built it up to be. So I'm going to read the essay that I'm referring to, and afterwards I'm going to delve into a cross between a discussion of films that affected me due to their portrayal of either death or immortality, and how the concept of death was presented to me through throughout my life through the lens of Islam. So this episode is technically a combo episode of layers that are in media and layers that are not in media. Just go with it, folks. Okay, here's the essay. A most 
common aversion. Of all the fears experienced by human beings, the fear of death is by far the most common. For some people, the fear is generated by the mystery of what could lie on the other side, while others simply fear the idea of not living. Some fear the process of death with all of the withering and pain that might accompany it, and others fear its unpredictable nature. Death like most things in this world, seems to have been stereotyped into its most negative forms, and usually is never given the benefit of our optimism. The brave few who have courageously ventured to explore the positivity behind death represent a rare and glorified band of knights who are able to look beyond the mist of fear that clouds our minds. Among this glorified band stand two poets by the name of Tennyson and Shelley who, through their unique depiction of death's qualities, have become themselves immortal in the world of literature. Alfred Lord Tennyson is the author of the poem Tithonus, which illustrates the emotions of a man who, in youth, asked for immortality, but in never-ending old age could think of nothing else but death's sweet and merciful release. Percy B. Shelley is the author of the poem Adonais, which, through many emotions and reflections, beautifully entertains the idea that in death, Adonais is freer than any living soul could possibly imagine. Together, these poets produce a message that could be hard for the living to embrace, which is that death should not only be accepted and appreciated, but also admired for its ability to defy all evil that plagues those doomed to live. Death, according to Tennyson and Shelley, is not so much the antagonist, but rather the hero in the circle of life. The part of Lord Tennyson's Tithonus that makes it so much of a tragedy is the fact that he wishes his endless state of misery upon himself. The initial desire for everlasting life was so irresistible as a mortal that the idea of immortality seemed more of a blessing than a curse. However, as time passed and he could not die, he soon saw that mortals were to be envied and looked upon them as, quote, happy men that have the power to die, end quote. The implication that death was not so much an unavoidable fate, but rather an enviable power of escape presents a compelling argument against the initial aversion to dying. Later in the passage, Tithonus seems to be begging the immortal goddess who loves him to take back her gift and pleads, quote, release me and restore me to the ground, end quote. The particular wording of this plea is crucial because within the constraint of a mere eight words, Tennyson has completely redefined the role that death has to play. Death is no longer illustrated as a thief stealing from the living, but rather is portrayed as a portal allowing for a coming home. The words release and restore suggest that death not only frees us, but also returns us to our natural state. Tennyson allows death to shed his conventional cloak of misery and don new and more delicious themes such as freedom and renewal. If Tennyson's one line can suggest a possibility of redefinition, then the chosen passage from Adonais clearly makes Shelley the master of reinvention. Not only does Shelley describe death as a freeing and rejuvenating state, but goes even further to emphasize how living is the true state of misery. In the 39th stanza of the poem, he claims, quote, He is not dead. He doth not sleep. He hath awakened from the dream of life. End quote. 
death is no longer an eternal nightmarish sleep or a frightful extermination of life, but instead is an awakening. He goes on to offer a new picture of the living by saying, quote, We decay like corpses in a charnel. Fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day, and cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay. End quote. The italicized we provides an effective emphasis on Shelley's claim that truly it is the living who are cursed with the ability to feel pain, anguish, depression, and decline. The soul of Adonais is free of its bodily prison and therefore does not have to feel all of the maladies that invade our physical forms. Shelley's elegiac portrayal of death and its and his opposite portrayal of life turn the tables and convincingly establish a newfound respect for something we all naturally fear. Although I do not entirely agree with Shelley's depiction of life, I find that both Tennyson's and Shelley's endorsement of death are not only admirable, but also persuasive. The way that Tennyson expertly illustrates Tithonus's suffering makes his readers cringe at the thought of immortality, and the way that Shelley ventures to make the living feel trapped in desolation makes his readers long for Adonais's freedom. In the end death prevails. Whether hated or loved, cherished or despised, death is the only true immortal in our world, and these masterful poets are one step ahead of mankind by celebrating it. And there you have it, the very simple essay that got a bizarre amount of reactions to it. Thinking back to the particular English class that I wrote this for, I remember that there was actually a wide selection of poetry that was available for us students to pick through. I can't exactly remember what made me go to these poems in that moment, but I can say that the concept of immortality, the concept of death versus eternity is a subject matter that I remember being quite emotionally striking growing up. My mom gave birth to 10 children and raised every single one of us as Muslims. And being our main Islamic teacher growing up, she was tasked with the duty to explain to us the concept of the soul, the reality of death through the lens of Islam and the concept of an afterlife. When it came time to discuss the afterlife, all of the kids, my brothers and sisters, really took the information quite well, except for me. My mom would use this metaphor to make us truly visualize how long eternal life actually meant for the soul. She would tell us, imagine that every stone and grain of sand on this earth was a bird seed. Now imagine that a bird comes once every 10,000 years to eat just one bird seed. Eternity is longer than that. And the thing is, she said it with a smile because it was supposed to be a good thing to teach kids that death is simply a part of the journey, but most definitely not the end. But I started crying. I legit was upset because, and Lord knows why I thought like this as a child, but eternity sounded exhausting. I guess in my head, death seemed like a long, relaxing sleep. But when I learned the concept of the soul being completely separate from the death of the physical body, oof, I did not process that information well. Poor Mumsy, I don't think she was quite prepared for that reaction. But then I think back to the films that I was watching as a child that specifically take on the subject of immortality versus mortality, and I specifically remember the films Tuck Everlasting and Troy. 
Do y'all remember Tuck Everlasting, the film with Alexis Bledel about a young girl who gets lost in the woods and gets found by a family that has lived in the woods for centuries? And they had lived for centuries because they, without knowing it, had drank from this seemingly natural fountain of water that ended up making them unable to age. So this family had to watch as their children and grandchildren grew old and they stayed the same and they had to adapt to each new century and the new elements that society and technology kept on introducing to the world. Okay, well, Alexis Bledel's character, Winifred, falls in love with the son of the family, this very handsome 17-year-old boy who is going to remain 17 forever. And he asks her to drink from the fountain and wait for him so that when he returns, because there was this whole drama that made the family have to flee, then they could live together young and beautiful forever. And the father of the Tuck family, Angus, played by William Hurt, takes Winnie out on a boat ride in the middle of a lake, and he delivers this extraordinarily powerful monologue that genuinely affected me as a child. William Hurt is incredible at monologues. Any film that gives him a monologue is infinitely better because of it. Anyway, he has this monologue where he's trying to explain to Winnie the reality of what it means to be an immortal human. And he says, look around you. Steam and life. Flowers and trees and frogs. It's all part of the wheel. It's always changing. It's always growing. Like you, Winnie, your life is never the same. You were once a child. Now you are about to become a woman. One day you'll grow up. You'll do something important. You'll have children, maybe. And then one day, you'll go out. Just like the flame of a candle, you'll make way for new life. That's a certainty. That's the natural way of things. And then there's us. What we talks have, you can't call it living. We just are. We're like rocks stuck at the side of a stream. Listen to me. Winnie, you know a dangerous secret. If people find out about the spring, they'll trample all over each other to get to that water. There's one thing I've learned about people. Many will do anything, anything not to die. And they'll do anything to keep from living their life. Do you want to stay stuck as you are right now, forever? Just got to make you understand. I don't want to die, is that wrong? No. No human does. But it's part of the wheel. The same as being born. You can't have living without dying. Don't be afraid of death, Winnie. Be afraid of the unlived life. It really is the delivery of the line, we are like rocks stuck 
at the side of the stream that hit me hardest when I was younger. And honestly, to this day, if I were to take the time to rewatch that film, it would probably have a similar effect. But the thing is, that movie wasn't great. It was kind of corny at some points, but that monologue will never leave me because it makes this incredibly bold move to challenge our fear of death, presenting it as something that is as natural as the river flowing into the sea. So you can imagine how watching a movie like that and then being presented with the Islamic belief that eternity actually is very much a reality for the soul was maybe not the smoothest transition. 10 out of 10 would not recommend. It's funny to think about our experience as Muslims because at least with the way I was brought up, there was always this focus on mindfully going about our existence. In Islam, we believe in the soul, right? So everyone has a physical body and in every body resides a soul which means we have this bizarre combination of existence when it comes to time because part of us is mortal and part of us is immortal. The human body is very specifically designed to feel time, to be connected to it and to be at its mercy. But for the soul, time is irrelevant. Time is an all-encompassing illusion that means nothing in the grand scheme of things. And so as Muslims, we have to navigate the world with this split consciousness of time. We are taught to be extremely mindful of the reality that we do not know how much time we are being granted to exist in these physical vessels that are our bodies. And we are warned not to be wasteful of our time because every day that we wake up in our bodies is a miracle. But we are also taught to remember that this life is not the real thing that matters. The actions that you take in this life matter. What you choose to do with the time that you are given matters, but the world itself, as it is presented to you with all the material wealth there is to be gained, means nothing. As soon as your physical body fails, ceases to function in this world, all of the material that you have accumulated will mean nothing. But everything that you did, every choice that you made in regards to yourself and in regards to everyone around you will, ha will have had a direct effect on how your soul exists for the rest of eternity. So we are propelled to deal with this finite existence to determine what will exist for us in the infinite. And I think it makes for an extremely bizarre experience to have to come to terms with the belief that mortality and immortality are both realities in their own way. It's something that I actually really struggled with up until very recently. I keep on saying that I had difficulty with the concept as a child, but the fact is that those thoughts and fears really followed me throughout my life. If I were to be honest about it, it probably is why I was so drawn to the poems of Tithonus and Adonais. But I had this conversation with this incredible Muslim woman a little while ago. And the conversation specifically centered around death within the context of Islam because I wanted to learn more about the beliefs and rituals to help me with a project of mine. And something that she did was she referred to an ayah in the Quran that goes along the lines of sleep is like a little death. Because the belief is that every time we sleep, the soul leaves the body and is only partially connected. Death is when the soul leaves the body and the connection to the physical is completely severed. And she asked, and what does time feel like when you sleep? You don't feel time. Time is insignificant in sleep. 
time is only really a reality for our physical bodies when we're awake. And I think that explanation finally made me comfortable with the concept of the soul existing for eternity well after the physical body has died. But until then, when it comes to us being alive here and now, time is a persistent reality that also somehow feels like a construct. The days can feel like they may be going by slowly, but the years are flying by in a matter of blinks. In the movie Troy, the one starring Brad Pitt as Achilles. As big and as loud and dramatic as the film was, there was this one particularly quiet scene that has stuck with me since the day I watched the film. And it's the scene where Achilles is challenging Briseis's belief and reverence for the Greek gods that she worships and has devoted her life to. He says, I'll tell you a secret. Something they don't teach you in your temple. envy us. They envy us because we're mortal. Because any moment might be our last. Everything's more beautiful because we're doomed. You will never be lovelier than you are now. We will never be here again. You know, I watched this movie when I was fairly young. And when you're young, in terms of like being a child, you're very unaware of time. You don't notice things in terms of time. This movie, that particular moment, changed that. It made me conscious of the temporariness that is our time here on Earth. The way our minds and our consciousness works, we literally are the center of our universe, and we see everything in relation to our existence. But the moment we step out of that illusion and truly contemplate the history of this world, we begin to understand and appreciate that we are a mere blip in time. A moment is all we are. The ending chapter of Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, is set a hundred plus years in the future and takes place in a university lecture hall. There is a professor standing at a podium delivering a lecture on the social and political effects of what was once referred to as Gilead, and he is referencing the voice messages that were salvaged from that time detailing the experiences of The Handmaid. It feels like an incredibly accurate ending because throughout the book, June's experiences are tragic and terrifying and they ground you in the moment. But Atwood's choice to end her novel a hundred years in the future with nothing but scraps of June's existence having survived and being used as a mere history lesson provides a very sobering reality that we are here for the time being, because for whatever reason, now is the moment that we are supposed to exist. And in the wise words of Gandalf, Decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. I hope that you have gained some benefit from listening to this episode, and I hope that you feel as if it was worth your time, because truly, your time is valuable, and I would not want to be guilty of wasting it. Y'all are listening to Layers in Media, a perspective, and I am your host, Aisha Sala. 
Catch you next time, folks.